Welcome to episode 11 of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 11, Veg Everlasting. This is the fourth chapter of our systematic breakdown of what might be America's favorite meal, a cheeseburger and fries. And throughout this season, a couple of themes have emerged. First, a hamburger is manifestly working-class food. And it, and all of its constituent elements, were each invented as solutions to how to make something edible or even delicious out of what was handy, underutilized, and inexpensive. Cheese, which we looked at last time, added a second theme of taking something packed with nutrition but extremely perishable and turning it into something that could be stored relatively safely for months or even years. Today, we're going to expand on both of those themes. Now, no one would accuse our cheeseburger deluxe of being a vegetable-heavy meal. There are often a few fresh veggies served with it or on it, a little iceberg lettuce and a slice of tomato, maybe. But let's face it, these are garnish, and they're often ignored or left off altogether. The vegetables that are more often included and appreciated come in the form of condiments, things we generally add at the table rather than in the kitchen. The reason condiments are such a popular addition to manifestly working-class meals like this one is that they're inexpensive and are packed with flavor, which is something that most working-class foods are not. And that's really the open secret about hamburgers. In their purest form, they don't really taste like much. Ground beef and white bread are not flavorful ingredients. And cheese gets more interesting tasting only as it gets more expensive. A teaspoon of ketchup, though? It would be hard to argue that that's not a strong flavor. And most condiments, it turns out, have the same superpower as cheese, preservative power. Jams, chutneys, picante sauces, and pickle lilies, they're all ways to take highly seasonal, highly perishable vegetables and turn them into a food product that keeps for a long time and is available all year, no matter the season. We can learn a lot about the history of food preservation by looking at two of the most popular add-ons to our burger, ketchup and pickles, two of the world's most popular attempts to create an everlasting vegetable. Let's start with the one that uses the older and simpler process, the pickle. To help us, here's someone who knows and cares a lot about pickles, Alan Kaufman, proprietor of the Pickle Guys on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I've been, I've been making pickles and been in the pickle business since 1981. So that would make it like 32 years, I believe. And that's how long I've been doing it. Yeah. When I first started, there were four pickle stores just on this block alone. So I worked with a couple of the old timers there, and that's how I learned the business. Al's store is in a neighborhood that at one time was mostly immigrants from Eastern Europe, and was therefore a hotbed of the specific kind of pickle making he practices, which was brought to this country by Jewish and Polish immigrants in the 19th century, who had been perfecting it for hundreds of years, if not thousands, in the old country. We're trying to keep that tradition alive, you know? Because, you know, this used to be the pickle district. At one time, there were about 80 pickle stores in this neighborhood. And now, now you're the only one? Yeah, now we're the only one to make it by hand. No machines, same old 100-year-old recipe. And that recipe is simplicity itself. It really relies on three ingredients. A vegetable, most popularly cucumbers, salt water, also called brine, and some kind of flavoring, frequently garlic and or dill. 
It's very simple. Uh, right here we have an empty barrel. What we're going to do is we're going to take the cucumbers, pour it into the barrel. And we're going to make brine right now. Take some salt. We're going to add the salt to the water. And then we just stir it up. I know it takes a few seconds to dissolve. And we're going to pour the brine on top of the cucumbers. See, it's clear now. And then you fill it up until the cucumbers, you see, they start to float. Now we're going to add pickling spices. They're blended for us. It has mustard seeds, uh, coriander seeds, some black peppercorn, white peppercorn, juniper berries, dried red pepper, and bay leaf. That's what we use. Smells great. Smell it? Yeah, amazing. So we add that to that. Okay. Oh, this is the best part now. Then if you do that, and then we take some nice freshly chopped garlic. That you, that's a shame you can't smell that. Uh oh. I take a scoop of that and put that right on top. And now we've just made a barrel of pickles. You just leave the spices right on top, you don't stir them in. No, what happens is uh, as time goes on, certain spices will become waterlogged and heavy, they'll sink down to the bottom, other spices will always float. But as it sits in the brine, the brine takes on the flavor, the flavor goes into the cucumber, the water comes out of the cucumber. Chemically speaking, that process is all about the way salt interacts with water. We described it in some detail when we talked about salt in episode 6 of last season, but I'll sum it up again for anyone who missed it. The active ingredient in salt is sodium, which is an electrolyte. And what that means is that it has the power to control water levels across semi-permeable membranes, like the ones that surround every living cell. Basically, there's a natural chemical inclination for sodium to evenly distribute itself in water. Which is why salt dissolves. When you drop it in water, it dilutes until there's no more or less sodium in any one part than in any other. Now, when you add a membrane into the picture, like the cell walls of a cucumber, the salt will redistribute until there's the same amount on both sides of the membrane. So gradually, the cucumbers become saltier and the brine less salty the longer they interact. Whatever else is mixed in and dissolved into the brine, all that garlic and pepper and coriander, also gets pulled into the cucumbers by the sodium, flavoring the pickles. What really makes a pickle a pickle, though, what gives it that unique vinegary flavor, is that the salt allows another chemical reaction to take place. We all know what would happen if we left a cucumber unattended on the kitchen counter for, say, three weeks. It would get soft, turn brown, and start to smell bad. In short, it would rot. This is largely because it becomes host to a whole bunch of microscopic organisms that start eating away at it, gradually breaking down its cells. Many of these microcritters, though, can't survive in salt water. And interestingly, they're largely the same microorganisms that make us, humans, sick. So what happens inside the pickle barrel is that the bad critters, 
the ones that make us ill and make rotten food taste terrible, are kept away by the salt, while some other human-friendly microcritters are still invited to the party. They start working away at the cucumbers and producing lactic acid as a waste product. This is a kind of fermentation, the same kind that happens to wine when it's made into vinegar, and that's why pickles have a similar acidic flavor. It's also very similar to the processes that we looked at in the last two episodes, the fermentation that turns milk into cheese and the fermentation that makes bread dough rise. And that's it. And just let it sit. The longer it sits in the barrel, we'll determine what kind of pickles they're going to be. If they're in the barrel for one to ten days, they're going to be a new pickle, nice and fresh with a clean taste. A half sour is like two weeks. It starts to take on the chemical reaction. It starts tasting a little more like a pickle, less like a cucumber. Then we know if you let it sit for a month, it becomes a three-quarter sour. And then to let it go to a full sour, it has to sit for at least three months. And that's full sour, most garlicky, most dilly tasting. That's one of the oldest and simplest forms of pickle making. And in my opinion, the pickles you make that way, sometimes called sour pickles or kosher dills, are, when done right, one of the most delicious things people have ever come up with. And it's an absolutely terrific way of preserving vegetables. Like the man said, he doesn't even consider them full sours until they've been marinating for at least three months. The disadvantage to them, though, in the modern world where pickling is a flavor choice and not a food preservation necessity, is just that. If you want them fully sour, you have to wait three months. That's a big reason why there are so many other kinds of pickle on the market. Because over the years, there's been lots of experimenting with adding other preservatives, like sugar or vinegar, and with using preservative techniques like partially cooking the pickles. One of the most popular kinds of pickle in relation to hamburgers is a yellowy colored sweet variety called a bread and butter pickle. Well, a bread and butter pickle is more of a processed pickle. It has to do with vinegar. It has to do with uh, heating up the pickle. If you use a hot brine, the pickles pickle faster. You're speeding up the process. But it takes away from the snappiness of the pickle. Then they inject it with corn syrup. Well, they, or not inject it, but they let it sit in corn syrup, and that's what gives it that flavor. And the cloves. It's like I like cloves in there, too. If you use a similar recipe to bread and butters, on chopped cucumbers rather than whole ones, you speed up the process even more because of the added surface area, and you end up with another popular condiment, pickle relish. It's interesting that pickle making developed from a process of using only fermentation to one that also used heat and sugar, because that's more or less the same story as our next condiment, ketchup. And ketchup, it turns out, began as something that almost no one today would recognize as a relative of the thick, sweet, fire engine red stuff that we all grew up with. To explain, here's someone I hope you remember from earlier in this series, the food historian Andrew Smith, who teaches at the New School University here in New York and is author of the book Pure Ketchup, A History of America's National Condiment. It really starts off as what, what you would think of uh, as soy sauce. Um, in Indonesia, and there was a whole series of fermented products of which soybeans were one, and they called them kachaps. And if you go to Indonesia today, you will see these fermented products. Kachap. Kachap, yeah. The story of how the Indonesian soy sauce kachap turned into American tomato ketchup is a convoluted one. And at its heart, like the story of the hamburger itself, it's all about cultures borrowing from one another and reinterpreting what they find. The Brits run into them in the late 1600s 
um, they have a colony in what's today Indonesia and they have explorers going through and they stop off there. People really like this fermented soybeans and when they get back to England the problem is soybeans at that point weren't growing. And so they started saying, well, why don't we experiment by fermenting other foods? And so they start fermenting a whole series of different products. One thing England had a lot of that are very nutritious and extremely perishable were fish. England does an awful lot of fishing because for cod and anchovies and um, a whole series of other things are part of the English diet. One of the problems with fish is that there's a whole lot of waste. Generally speaking, they're filleted, and you eat those two big side muscles. The rest of it, the head, the bones, the skin, the scales, are thrown out. Now, a thousand years before the idea of fermented soybeans was brought to England from Indonesia, England was a Roman colony. And the Romans were absolutely nuts for a sauce called garum that was made from fermented fish scraps. You basically took all those grizzly bits, pickled them, and then used the resulting liquid from the barrel as a condiment. The exact recipe for garum was lost in the Middle Ages, but it's very possible that there remains some kind of cultural memory of this idea of a fermented fish sauce. So, inspired by this interaction with Indonesian kachap, the Brits again began fermenting fish bits. What do you do with the rest of the stuff that's left over? Um, and how do, you, how do you commercialize your product? And one of the problems um, is you've got to preserve it. And so the basic principle behind a condiment is that you're going to preserve something that can be used six months from now or a year from now, or in some cases they claim 20 years for ketchup recipe. So the goal is you can catch it today, preserve it now, and consume it when, you, when, when the food is not available. Today there is a product available in stores on both sides of the Atlantic that is a direct descendant of these original British ketchups. It was originally made from fermented anchovies, and it's called Worcestershire sauce. And Worcestershire sauce is exactly what the ketchup early on would have looked like and tasted like. Uh, so now today it has relatively small amounts of anchovies in it, but historically it would have been anchovies. I mean, anchovies would have been the main product that would have been fermented, and then you would have added uh, flavorings to that salt and whatever else that you wanted. Pretty soon, in both England and in the soon-to-be former British colonies in America, they're making ketchups out of just about anything you can think of. The idea of making ketchup from tomatoes, though, seems to be uniquely American. They made ketchup out of everything. So they had apple ketchup, which, by the way, is very good. They had liver ketchup. They had uh, walnut ketchup. They had oyster ketchup. So they tried everything. The best evidence for tomatoes coming into this is American in the late 1780s is the first evidence that I found for it. First time that anybody made ketchup out of tomatoes. And tomatoes were a great candidate for this kind of preservation technique because they are as seasonal a food product as there is. Ripe tomatoes were only available in most of the United States in the summer and really only at their best for about a month or the month of August. We get around this now by growing tomatoes in greenhouses and flying them in from other parts of the world. But still, August is tomato time. And every August, tomatoes are cheap, abundant, and delicious. But only for a few weeks. The problem with tomatoes is you get hundreds of thousands or millions of them during the tomato season. And then you, you, then you have, at, when the season ends, um, you have no tomatoes for a period of seven or eight months. And so, consequently, the goal is you got all these tomatoes that cost nothing at that, you can sell so many fresh and then what do you do with the rest of them? And so they started canning tomatoes, the first thing that they did, and that made some sense. 
And then when you can tomato, I mean, there were there were rotten tomatoes. There were tomato. When you can them, you would cut out anything that was green. I mean, we're not talking about the red tomato that you have today. If that core was green, you'd cut the core out. And that's what you would can. What do you do with all this junk that's left over? And the answer is the Roman solution. You throw it into a barrel. <laughs> you put a little salt in there. You let it ferment. And so they began making ketchup from all of the leftovers from the canning industry. And so that's the start of this. The popularity of canned tomatoes and other tomato products like tomato paste, sauce, juice, and so forth, as well as ketchup, has led to the development of varieties of tomato specifically suited for processing, which are quite different from the beefsteak or heirloom tomatoes we'd buy to slice and eat raw. To tell us about modern tomatoes and modern tomato processing, here are Patrick Leger and Teresa Vigiano, who own First Field, a company based in New Jersey that makes small-batch gourmet ketchup. And please pardon the occasional interjections from their infant son, Clarence, who decided to join us for the interview. Most of the acreage in the United States is, for tomatoes is dedicated to processing tomatoes. Most people consume their tomatoes in a, in a processed format, whether a sauce, ketchup, and so forth. Far more. And the acreage is so... But most people think, like, oh, those are the same tomatoes. Well, they're not. I mean, the, the processing tomatoes are, are not something you would enjoy slicing and having. You know, they're just, they tend to be smaller, much more dense far less uh, moisture, kind of, which helps you in the cooking process. If you're using exactly. an heirloom tomato, you're going to have mostly water. Yeah. So you're going to get less yeah. tomato left over, if that makes sense, like when you're actually cooking it, versus mm -hmm. the tomatoes that we use, which are meant for canning, are going to have a lot more solids in them, less water. So you're going to retain more of that tomato and more of the nutrition in there. Yeah. But even with all of these innovations, the processed tomato industry is still tied to that very restrictive growing schedule. Even the hardiest, highest-yielding plants only give up their best fruit in late summer. We start from seed as early as the end of February, possibly the beginning of April. And this depends a little bit on the lights you have, how fast you can grow them, all these. But generally, it takes about eight weeks to get a solid transplant, a seedling the size that you can transplant into the ground. Right, okay, and you would have to start that then. Here, you'd have to start that at a greenhouse. I mean, you have, right. you have to. Right. You have to. In northern Jersey, it's yes. not have pretty. To, have you to cannot to direct. No other way to do it. Yeah. So then, then they get planted into the ground maybe June? Actually, um, May? That's May. For, yeah, usually May. Um, sometimes as early as April for the different varieties. So a cold, hardy variety can be planted as early as the beginning of April. And then usually they're harvested when? So the first harvest would be? The first harvest usually is about the third week of August. Oh, wow, okay. That long. That yeah. long, yeah. So it's, it's a slow process from It's beginning. a slow process, and yeah. It seems I mean, you to can, be shifting. You can sometimes yeah. get um, a first harvest in earlier, but you couldn't actually fully harvest the plants. They would be the first blush tomatoes, what they're called. So the tomatoes that just kind of came out early. You could eat you stuff in those. July. I mean, it's no problem. It's just but the whole you're not plant gonna have You can't get the large harvest. Like, if you're, if you're talking about, like, the like first big harvest. Maximum peak, yeah, you know, harvestable harvest. tomatoes. You really kind of... You want to wait for those. You can get the cold, hardy ones, the ones that come out earlier, but... They're just sort of wetting your appetite. You know, they're just getting you ready for, for August. Now, the product Patrick and Teresa sell is not made by fermenting tomatoes. And this is very probably true of everything you could go to your local store and buy that's labeled tomato ketchup. That's because what we think of as ketchup took a dramatic shift right around the turn of the 20th century. Today, what we call ketchup is a sauce made mostly from four ingredients— cooked tomatoes, usually in the form of tomato paste, and three ingredients that all have preservative qualities, vinegar, salt, and sugar. 
This is a recipe that yields a flavor that's about as far from the original Indonesian soy sauce as you could possibly get. And this shift in the nature of ketchup was due to the phenomenal success of a particular brand of ketchup. One that rose from the herd of all the ketchups being made in the early 20th century and came to completely dominate the market. As a general rule, with the exception of crediting people we interview, we usually avoid mentioning brand names in this series. But this particular brand, Heinz, is the elephant in the room when it comes to ketchup, so we might as well come out and acknowledge it. Their ketchup, or more specifically their variety called fancy tomato ketchup, was so different from the other things on the market and was so successful that it more or less single-handedly changed the meaning of the word ketchup from a thin acidic liquid made from nearly anything that's been fermented to a thick, sweet, bright red sauce made from cooked tomatoes. Here's Andrew Smith again. And Heinz, they make a number of very good decisions early on. Part of that is to have it a much thicker thing rather than the thin ketchup that would have been served before. This becomes much thicker. You add more uh, salt to it and you add more sugar to it. And from about 1900 on, um, they've dominated the ketchup industry more than 50%. I don't think they ever dropped below 50%. And now I think it's about 62% of all sales are, are Heinz. And for many of us, that sweet, salty, primary color flavor is nothing less than the taste of childhood. It elicits deep sense memories. It, it's put on whatever food you're having, and it's that common denominator that brings your taste buds back to, you know, kind of a, a sense of, of comfort. So we talked about ketchup being almost like the Esperanto of food. I mean, it's, you can take children from all around the world and get along fine eating different foods by just dousing it in some ketchup. You know, it's, it's something people reach to to adjust whatever they have in front of them to their expectation. That total dominance of a single idea of what ketchup tastes like has put Patrick and Teresa in an interesting position. They're trying to bring back some of the variety that used to be available in ketchups, but they've found they get in big trouble if they stray too far from that seminal childhood flavor. So the, the product has to perform according to those guidelines because it's, it's, it's so ingrained in people. It shouldn't taste like a chutney or feel like a chutney, you know, should, you know, so you have to be within that ballpark. But there's tremendous amount of opportunity for uh, a product to, uh, to be different in, in other ways. So one is uh, how, you know, what it's made from and how it's made. So we start from fresh tomatoes. Every other maker that we know out there uses tomato pastes or concentrates and so forth. But, you know, we have fresh onion, for example, we saute. Everyone else is using there. onion powders. I mean, like, if you look at other, like, mustards, for example, you see just this proliferation of brands and different flavors and styles and so forth. But that's a market where there hasn't been that dominant player in the space. Um, in a sense, uh, there's not a whole lot of competition. However, the one competitor has really defined the people's expectation, you know, completely. You couldn't really do what's happened with the different mustards and the different this and... I don't think that can really happen because, you know, Heinz has done such a great job over the years of really kind of eliminating its competition at the time and really becoming the sort of de facto condiment. Now, all of this begs a question that has caused several political flare-ups in the U.S. over the past 30 years or so, whenever the question comes before Congress of what the federal regulations should be regarding school lunches. 
Should condiments like ketchup and pickle relish count as vegetables? Do they have anything like the same nutritional value as raw tomatoes and cucumbers? Well, like with all questions of nutrition, it's hard to answer definitively one way or another. But here's what we can say. Neither tomatoes nor cucumbers have a heck of a lot of carbohydrates or fats or fiber. So most of their nutritional value comes from micronutrients, vitamins A, C, and K, potassium, magnesium, calcium. And all of these do more or less hang around and remain in the finished product. There's also some research now about something called lycopene, a kind of antioxidant that's unique to tomatoes and seems to be more present in cooked tomatoes than raw ones. It possibly has some health benefits relating to your skin, but research on it is very new and very inconclusive. The nutritional negatives associated with condiments are, of course, because their primary preservatives and flavoring agents are salt and sugar, which are as controversial as nutrients get. I'll refer you to episodes five and six of last season for full half-hour discussions of the possible problems with each. For now, suffice it to say that the negative feelings about salt do seem to be softening a bit among many nutrition scientists, and there's no sugar added to traditional kosher pickles. So unless you're on a severely salt-restricted diet, they seem like a perfectly good way to get a few extra vitamins. And there's even some thinking that the lactic acid-producing bacteria in them might be good for your digestion. So, l'chaim, have a pickle. As for ketchup and sweet pickle products like relish, there's never been more consensus that Americans eat way too much sugar. And proportionally speaking, ketchup and sweet pickles both have a lot of sugar in them. Heinz ketchup is roughly 23% sugar, whereas a sweet and soft drink might only be 11% sugar. If you were to eat enough ketchup to make a significant contribution to your micronutrient levels, it would also have so much sugar in it that the negatives would far outweigh the positives. Of course, hardly anyone eats that much ketchup. It's such a strong flavor that most of us only eat a tablespoon or two at a time. It would take a serious commitment to eat 16 ounces of ketchup in a single sitting, the way we might drink a 16 or 18 ounce soda or even a larger one. So the case could be made that it really doesn't matter either way. There are neither enough vitamins to be of any real benefit or enough sugar to be a significant detriment. But the case could also be made that this use of sugar in what we think of as savory foods can really start to add up. And many popular condiments, not only ketchup, but barbecue sauces, salad dressings, and so forth, really do have surprising amounts of sugar. So if your daily sugar intake is a concern to you, it's important to look beyond cookies, ice cream, and soda pop, and give a thought to how much of these sorts of condiments you are using, and how often. Speaking of the flavors of childhood, hamburgers are all well and good. But any self-respecting seven-year-old will tell you that the real attraction at a fast food restaurant is what comes with the burger. The most preferred ketchup delivery system worldwide and one of the most universally appealing food products ever devised, the French fried potato. Next time on A Thought for Food. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Alan Kaufman, Andrew Smith, Patrick Leger, and Teresa Vigiano. This show is a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, 
please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash what we do slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science, where you can see photo galleries from our visits to some of the places we feature in this series, including the Pickle Guys. And please also feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science and the City program via email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.